Uh, we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. Uh, you can follow up on the screen as I read it aloud. John chapter 3. This is God's word. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. <coughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for this conversation. We pray in this time that it would uh, you know, not, not just be, um, yeah, I guess we'd like it for it to be enjoyable, but uh, maybe more so uh, for it be a for it to be a time where we hear from you, where you speak to us through your word, where you convict us of heart, where you reveal and show us uh, the amazing beauty of the love of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So as I said, we are going through the Gospel of John, and it is, I think, a, a very brilliant gospel in many ways because, as I've said in the past, there is a simplicity to it, so it's very easy to understand. The Greek is easy to translate. Uh, in the youth group, we're actually reading through the Gospel of John, and for the most part, they can follow along with what's going on in the story. So there's a simplicity to the Gospel of John, which I think is great. Uh, and yet, there is a, a depth to it. There's a literary beauty and a spiritual depth to the Gospel of John. Uh, if you were here on Christmas Eve, I think a lot of um, families were not here on Christmas Eve, but if you were here on Christmas Eve, I gave this little sermon directed more towards like the younger kids and one of the things I tried to do was highlight the aspect of light and darkness that we saw in the prologue by using these flashlights and these like little uh, flashlight toys. 
If you've ever been involved in any kind of artistic endeavor, which is, uh, I guess these days, everybody's a photographer, right? Because we all have these things called uh, uh, smartphones with cameras. Um, if you've ever been like part of an artistic endeavor and you're taking photos, one of the things you're thinking about is the lighting. Or if you're uh, someone who's a filmmaker, they're thinking about lighting. Or back in the days, if someone was a painter, they're probably thinking about what kind of light do we want to show this, this piece to, to be in? Because the way you use light and the way you use darkness can convey a lot about what you're trying to say or the emotion you're trying to set up or the, the scene you're trying to set up. I think John might be doing something similar here because we saw in the prologue light and darkness is a theme. Uh, but when we look at this conversation and contrast it to next week's conversation with the Samaritan woman, I think John might be using this... Uh, you know, kind of like a filmmaker uses light and darkness to kind of set the scene or set the stage for these two conversations. Today, we're going to look at a conversation uh, that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. Next week, we're going to look at a conversation that Jesus has with a woman, a Samaritan woman. And what's interesting about these two conversations is Nicodemus's conversation takes place at night. Next week's conversation with the Samaritan woman takes place in the middle of the day. And I think John is putting these conversations back to back as kind of some sort of comparison, maybe. Nicodemus is this respected Jewish leader. He's coming to Jesus at night. The Samaritan woman, she is shunned and has uh, lost, I guess, the honor. The honor and the respect of uh, her community. Um, And yet, she encounters Jesus by day. Both of them are the same in a sense that they don't fully understand what Jesus is saying at first. But it's the Samaritan woman who ultimately ends up leading other Samaritans to faith on account of her testimony. And so just something to keep in mind in this context as we look at this conversation with Nicodemus. John 3 is a very, uh, I don't know if the entire passage is famous, but certainly there's a verse in there that's very famous in John 3.16. And while it's certainly a very important verse that explicates the love of God, Uh, what the first half or the context of that conversation is also very important because what Jesus talks about is something called the new birth. As we uh, begin to take a look at this passage, I think it's important to understand who Nicodemus is, where he's coming from. We're introduced to him in verse 1. It says, he was a man of the Pharisees, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So that tells us a couple things about Nicodemus. One, he wasn't like the average uh, working-class man who kind of had the simple curiosity about uh, this person, Jesus. But no, he's somebody of great power and influence and also great education. This was probably not only one of the more educated people with respect to Jewish law, because he was a a Pharisee, but uh, he was also a ruler of the Jews. He was probably someone uh, pretty high up in, I guess, the politics of, of the Jewish community. And uh, maybe to put it in more contemporary terms, he's kind of like a scholar or maybe like a politician who has like this PhD from one of the most prestigious universities uh, working at the most prestigious uh, places in the country. And this man, right, this kind of man comes to Jesus at night in order to have a conversation with him. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. And you see, at this point, Jesus has performed signs and miracles, and people are starting to like see what Jesus is doing, and people are starting to follow him. And therefore, at first glance, it, it looks like Nicodemus 
might be very respectful of Jesus because he's like calling him rabbi. He's like, you're a teacher, you're a rabbi, acknowledging that he is a teacher who has come from God. But if we realize, really analyze what Nicodemus is doing here, he's not there seeking spiritual renewal from Jesus. He's not there like saying, oh, Jesus, I, I, I need you to teach me. But what he's actually doing here is he's doing some politicking, okay? See how he says, we know that you are a teacher from God. He doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. And commentators are saying that, you know, Nicodemus is obviously alone in this situation. But what he's probably doing is he's probably speaking as a representative of one of the sects within Judaism. He's saying, we, we know that you're a teacher from God. We know that you're gaining influence with these signs that you're performing. So Jesus, let's make some kind of deal. Jesus, you scratch our back. We'll scratch yours. And isn't that how modern politics works? You, you exchange favors, right? But Jesus doesn't play that game. He doesn't play the political game with Nicodemus. He almost completely disregards what Nicodemus says here. And rather, what he says penetrates the very heart of uh, the issue here with Nicodemus. What he says is this. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he has been born again. And... As we talked about in youth group, right? Nicodemus is said, never asked, how can I see the kingdom of God, right? So it's kind of like a non sequitur. Jesus is telling him what he needs to hear. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he has been born again. And surely Nicodemus must be thinking, Jesus wouldn't be talking about somebody like me, somebody who is well-respected, somebody who is as accomplished as I am, somebody who is a ruler of the Jews, Right? And Nicodemus says to him, a little bit confused, uh, how can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And Jesus says it again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. What is Jesus getting at here? What does he mean when he says one must be born again and one must be born of water and Spirit? Uh, It may sound a little bit cryptic to us, and maybe not all of us get the reference to the Old Testament, but somebody like Nicodemus surely should understand the reference here. He should have known Jesus is making a reference to the prophet Ezekiel, specifically Ezekiel 36, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of um, flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The language is not here saying, oh, I promise to uh, renovate your heart. I promise to improve your heart. Uh, It's not like saying, uh, you know, we need to do some heart surgery and get in there and repair one of your uh, arteries. It's much more transformative than that. It's saying you actually need a heart transplant. Your old heart is not good enough, and you need a new heart to be uh, implanted into you. You need someone else's heart to be implanted into you because your heart is that corrupt, and if you continue to live with this heart that is corrupt, you will be dead. Nicodemus should have known this and understood that God is promising here a new covenant, that he will cleanse us from all our sins, and he is the one who will put a new heart within us. And that's why Jesus even points this out to Nicodemus in verse 10. He says, you are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. But yeah, he doesn't get it. 
Right, which also tells us a uh, full understanding of what Jesus is saying doesn't require like the best education, uh, which is what Nicodemus gets, has. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying here. And I think that's something worth remembering. Nicodemus, the religious expert, yet he doesn't understand. But why doesn't he understand? He has certain assumptions about himself, and he has certain assumptions about the nature of God, which end up not really aligning with uh, who he truly is and who God truly is. He assumes, yeah, he's not that bad of a person, at least relative to everybody else. He assumes, you know, if anybody's going to enter the kingdom of God or if anybody should be able to enter the kingdom of God, wouldn't it be somebody like me, right? And I think he also assumed God allows people like me to enter into the kingdom of God on account of my ability of how much law I know and how closely I can follow that law. Or to put it another way, if you were to ask Nicodemus, who is it that God would allow to enter into the kingdom, and you were to ask him, would it be uh, somebody like you, a teacher of the law, or would it be like somebody like the Samaritan woman with five husbands? Nicodemus, who do you think it would be? And I'm sure Nicodemus and other people would have thought, well, surely somebody like me and not the Samaritan woman. But that's precisely why I think Jesus is using this metaphor of a new birth. It's a metaphor that tells Nicodemus, look, there is nothing you can do to earn your way into the kingdom of God. Your status, your power, your influence, your education, all of these things are not enough to enter into the kingdom of God. The only way to enter is to be born again. You've got to be born of water and the Spirit. Now think about birth for a little bit. What happens during a birth? Uh, what does one do when they are born? Nothing, right? <laughs> the baby does nothing. The one who does all the work is, <clears throat> right? The father, no. <laughs> I got all these even. <laughs> right? The mother does all the work, right? That's why you call it labor. Uh, the mother is the one who goes through all the pain. The mother is the one whose body gets like broken in order to birth this child. Uh, we, we have it a, a little bit backwards in our culture where, you know, it's Karis' birthday this Saturday. She's nonstop talking about her birthday. Um, and uh, I guess we started this tradition when they were younger, which um, I guess if you start something, they, they just kind of expect it. So, you know, we get gifts and do like a little like treasure hunt with like clues, and then they would answer the clues and then find the hiding spot. And... Um, She's expecting it again this year, right? At some point, you get, you get too old for that. But anyway, uh, in our culture, uh, you know, it's like the parents are giving gifts to the child for their birthday. Shouldn't it be the other way around, <laughs> right? Shouldn't, like, Karis be the one doing a treasure hunt for, for mom <laughs> and getting gifts for mom? Of course, right? Uh, why? Because when one is born, the person who's born doesn't really do anything, but somebody is doing all the work to birth you. Jesus is making that point here with Nicodemus. Uh, you do not enter the kingdom of God on account of who you are or what you have achieved. You, you actually cannot do anything uh, to enter into the kingdom of God. The only thing that, uh, the only way you enter the kingdom of God is to be born again. And the thing about being born is it's not really in your control. You don't really do anything to get birth, to get that life, or to, in this case, get that new life. Jesus is the one who labors. 
Jesus is the one who suffers. Jesus' body is the one who gets broken so that we can have this new birth, so that we can have this life. Look at verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And this is kind of like an obscure reference to a story that takes place in Numbers 21 where people are being killed by a plague of poisonous snakes. And I don't know what their reactions are, but I guess my imagination says, like, you're getting, you know, bit by these venomous snakes. You probably have high fevers. Maybe you're convulsing a little bit, right? They're dying from these snake bites. But God provides a way out for them to be saved from these poisonous snakes by lifting up this bronze serpent, right? Why in the world would Jesus reference this obscure story in this instance? It is a point... It is to point to what would ultimately take place uh, when Jesus dies on the cross, what Jesus offers through his death and resurrection. You see, rather than the serpent being lifted up and providing new physical life, the Son of Man is the one who would be lifted up and provide eternal life. And where does such an event take place? Of course, it happens on the cross. It happens on, uh, when Jesus, uh, in Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's for this reason that now we get to that famous verse in John three sixteen. Uh, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son to die on a cross, to be lifted up so that we could have eternal life, so that we uh, would be able to receive the life that he gives through faith, through belief in him. And this is the whole reason why Jesus came into the world. Contrary to the understanding of somebody like Nicodemus, Jesus didn't come into the world to be a rabbi. He didn't come into the world to just merely be a teacher and to exegete Jewish law and to provide more knowledge for us as if the ultimate problem with man is an absence of knowledge. But no, Jesus came into this world to die on a cross and be exalted so that people like you and me can look up to him to believe and receive life that he gives through the new birth. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here saying it's not about being as religious as you can and doing all the right things. Uh, You are virtually powerless, actually, to see and to enter into the kingdom of God. The only way you are born into the kingdom is by grace alone, which is why we need God to be the loving God that he is. Uh, Here's the catch. Uh, You can't view Jesus, though, uh, as a mere teacher like Nicodemus. You have to view him as your savior. Uh, I think there is this trend that happens um, that I notice um, where people, uh, you know, people either go to church for the first time or people come back to church. And uh, the period, the season where people maybe come back to church is after they have kids because they say, well, um, you know, I actually know somebody, a family who says, yeah, I actually don't believe in Jesus. I'm like, oh, so why do you come to church <laughs> every week? Why do you go to a church every week? They're like, well, I want my kids to be exposed and learn good morals and good, learn good teachings, right? Uh, there's a ton of people who do that. It's like, I, I want my, my kids to be in church because I want them to learn good morals and become good people. Um, but I would say that's relegating Jesus to just simply be this good teacher uh, and making the same mistake that Nicodemus is making here. Yeah, sure, Jesus does teach, but he is much more than a teacher. And if we are looking for the full transformation that comes from a new birth and not merely like a um, 
reformation of heart or fixing of our heart, but to receive a completely new heart, he has to be the Savior that he is who causes us to be born again. So what's the test of how we view Jesus? I think this passage actually gives us uh, one test that we could use, and it has to do with light and darkness. Look at verses uh, 19, and um, let's just look at verse 19. And this is a judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And then it goes on to say, right, that everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come into the light lest their works be exposed. But the one who does what is true comes to the light. I think those who look at Jesus as a teacher, you know, may very well have a respect for Jesus, but they probably won't come into the light. Why? Because they don't want to feel condemned. But those who look at Jesus as Savior will actually come to the light. Why? Because they know they will not be condemned because Jesus is a Savior because they've experienced something of the sweetness of the love of Christ. And they know nothing, even their sin, can separate them from the love of God. And therefore, they know that by coming into the light, rather than the expectation of condemnation, they'll receive greater life and greater grace and a greater sense of God's salvation. Uh, Look at Nicodemus. Compare him to somebody like the Samaritan woman, uh, which we haven't looked at yet. But the Samaritan woman has five husbands. Who was more likely to view Jesus as a savior? I I bet it was probably the Samaritan woman because her sin was already exposed to the light. Uh, Everybody knew who she was. Everybody knew what um, she did in life. And in that moment, Jesus can minister to her with saving grace. Who's more likely to view Jesus merely as a teacher? Probably somebody like Nicodemus who comes to Jesus at night thinking, hey, how can I uh, use Jesus for my own political gain? You know what I think is a bit haunting about this text uh, for us folks in our context? I actually think we aim to be more like Nicodemus, right? If we, if we really get deep into our hearts and think about it, I think we probably aim to be a little bit more like Nicodemus. We're probably more like Nicodemus than the Samaritan woman. I think folks here are generally respectable members of society, Uh, I don't mean to say that's a bad thing or that the Samaritan woman is better because she isn't. Um, But I think when you're somebody like Nicodemus, you kind of have more to lose, right? Just like Nicodemus, you can lose your respectability, uh, which has taken you years and years and years to build based on your education or your career or how much time you build in building a family. And therefore, I think our temptation is to view Jesus more like Nicodemus did We have a respect for Jesus, but not necessarily a deep dependence on Jesus. Uh, I was reading a commentary, and this commentator had a very interesting way of uh, phrasing how he described Nicodemus in this story. He looks at Nicodemus as somebody who's illustrating a partial faith in Jesus. He says Nicodemus would have had a partial faith in Jesus on the basis of he saw uh, the signs and miracles that Jesus performed. And that, that phrase, partial faith, caught, caught my attention, and it gave me some pause. Uh, I think in a lot of life, if we think about it mathematically, we usually think partial is better than nothing, right? So having a partial dollar is better than having no dollar, or having, uh, if you're hungry, having a partial sandwich is better than having no sandwich, right? 
Uh, I don't know if that equation necessarily translates, though, into a life with Jesus. I started thinking how that would translate in a relationship. Uh, what if a husband or a wife has a partial heart for their spouse? Or what if a parent has a partial heart for their children? I think in those instances, having a partial heart is actually not great. Why? Because the expectation in a context of that kind of relationship is wholehearted devotion. I think the same thing applies, actually, when it comes to Jesus. And I suspect a partial heart would probably be defined in the Bible as a divided heart. The only way to relate to Jesus is with a whole faith rather than a partial faith. And yet, the temptation for us is so many of us settle for a partial faith. And partial faith, I think, can be dangerous. Here's why. Um, I don't know if this... uh, yeah, I don't know how accurate this is, but I wonder if it's almost better to have no faith than have a partial faith because then you aren't um, tempted to present yourself in a certain way uh, and you're not tempted to necessarily conceal mm, the most sinful parts of you. Okay, here's what I mean. I think there is a kind of disillusionment that is growing with the church and part of the growing disillusionment comes from churches, church leaders being exposed with all these like scandals. Uh, yesterday, I just read about another uh, well-known pastor resigning um, because of some kind of secret sin. And uh, by the way, I should also say like these kind of things are not necessarily new. And if you read church history, corruption um, within the church in all branches of Christianity is, is taking place. But I think for church leaders, there's this particular temptation to keep sin in the dark because if you reveal it uh, in our system, right, you're, you're out of a job or there's an additional layer of shame because then your sin becomes uh, very public to everybody. And so you're studying all the time and you, you need uh, the Bible in order to produce output for like, your sermons and your Bible studies and things like that. And the temptation, of course, is to look at Jesus as like a teacher, as someone to use like Nicodemus did, rather than to see him as a savior that we need. And that's not how we ought to approach Jesus with this partial, respectable faith, because then you know what happens? You don't come into the light. You let things remain in the darkness. But no, we need to be a people. uh, We need to come to Jesus as a people and allow our sin to be exposed to the light because that's where we, I think, will begin to see hope. Instead of feeling disillusionment or hopelessness when respectable Christians are exposed, I think we actually will see the source of hope in the very next chapter with the Samaritan woman. There will be people who may not be viewed as respectable because of the judgments of the world, and their sin is exposed to the world. And yet, it is that exposure and that vulnerability that will allow them to really see the beauty of what Jesus has to offer Perhaps it's not the Nicodemuses who will share a testimony that reveals the beauty of Christ, but perhaps it's going to be the testimonies of folks like the Samaritan woman who reveal the beauty of Christ because they, um, they will know and see a God who loved the world, who gave his only son, rather than seeing a God who so taught the world that he educated us through his only son. The latter doesn't sound as good, right, as the first part. Uh, We have to be a people of the light. That can be painful. That can make us feel vulnerable. 
which is why we don't want to do it. But that's actually where you find salvation. Please let us not view Jesus as this good moral figure uh, who allows us to maintain our respectability as someone who we are just merely supposed to imitate. And while that is true, he is much, much, much more than that. And failing to grasp that is going to keep us in the dark where sin and death and Satan reign supreme. But as Jesus is the light of the world, uh, he calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light to expose our sin because in that we expose who he is, our Savior. And through that exposure and through belief in him and through deep reliance upon him, letting go of our respectability, letting go of the things that uh, we, we don't want um, to be exposed into the light, we experience the power of the new birth of Jesus as our Savior. And his love goes deeper. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, your love. And, you know, as we, um, I don't know, as, as we see that John 3.16 verse uh, um, everywhere or referenced, um, you know, we don't want to lose the, the meaning and the power of it uh, in this context. It is truly amazing that Jesus was sent into the world, that God is, that God, you would be so loving that you would give your only son so that we wouldn't be uh, condemned, so that we wouldn't be uh, judged and destroyed, but that you would send your son so that we might be saved from condemnation, so that we might have life. Uh, I don't know, I suspect um, many of us, and I know myself for sure uh, we probably resemble more um, uh, like Nicodemus uh, in how we um, you know look at things and even if in our head we know that that's not the gospel um, sometimes we just operate with this partial faith and we want to you know respect Jesus but we don't completely surrender to him and therefore uh, maybe sometimes there's a block in what we're able to see of the beauty of Christ. God, expose us to the light, and uh, though it may be painful at first, we know uh, ultimately that's where we'll find joy and life and salvation and freedom. Uh, bring us into the light, out of darkness. Uh, help us to be a people of repentance and to look up to the Son of Man who is lifted up that we might receive life and salvation from him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.